In this episode of the Parent Hope Podcast, and the parent ups the pressure, the child increases their provoking and their reactivity, the parent ups their assertiveness, adds a threat, the child increases their agitation, and they're highly energized, adrenalized, and the parent is furious. And in some way, when parents can step back from it, they can see that the child is unhelpfully rewarded physiologically in this kind of cycle, and it can just repeat itself. Hello, and welcome to the Parent Project Podcast. My name is Dr. Jenny Brown, and you are invited to join me on a journey through various topics and reflections about the all-important parent-child relationship from the early years all the way through to young adulthood. My aim is to assist parents to recover their confidence in their role, so tricky in these anxious times. I will be inviting parents to consider redirecting your energy away from monitoring or worrying about your child and towards yourself and the way you manage yourself with your child. Join me in considering the positive outcomes for children when the parent is the project. In this podcast, I'm looking at adolescence, which can be thought of as a stage of independence on steroids, kind of a repeat of the toddler years, but ramped up even more. And as you know, if you've been listening to this series so far, or you're familiar with the principles behind the Parent Hope Project, you'll know that I'm focusing on the parent development in response to their child's developmental stage. And for parents, this stage can often be a huge challenge, pressing their reactivity buttons. Uh, In my writing, in my books, I say to parents that I think adolescence is a fabulous opportunity to look at our own growing up, our own maturity gaps, because adolescents find a way to just push our trigger buttons, our impulsivity, and we can end up reacting to the adolescences if we've gone back to their very stage of development. What I want to convey particularly in this podcast is that a parent's efforts to correct behaviors can inadvertently reinforce a conflict cycle, which is not helpful to the development of the child and the family environment as a whole. There are two common types of interaction that parents can get into at any stage, but especially at this stage of adolescence. They are the escalating fight conflict cycle where the parent tells themselves, I've got to stand my ground here or I'm a bad parent. I cannot give in. And they get caught in an escalating conflict cycle. And the other cycle is an escalating rescue and accommodating cycle where the parent perceives the child struggling to function, to get out of bed, to get to school, to socialize, to get out of the house. Very common during this stage and a parent can move into sympathizing with the child's challenges and perceiving them as having mental health vulnerabilities that require nurturing and rescuing. And while the basis of either of these cycles has some validity to them very often, 
I'm encouraging parents to look at the way they respond and what's the effect of it. Is it promoting an adolescent's growth in responsibility and thoughtfulness and self-regulation or is it inadvertently fueling reactive dependence? Inevitably, when parents get into either of these cycles, the conflict or rescuing cycle, the other parent watching on, or perhaps a grandparent watching on, or another member of the family, they will respond critically as they're triggered by seeing what looks like ineffective efforts of the other caregiver. Either saying to themselves, either quietly or out loud, you're too hard and unreasonable, or in the nurturing cycle, you're too soft, you're giving in all the time. And just be mindful that an adolescent, especially very socially attuned at this stage, they know which parent is in their corner. And this can reinforce their stuckness as they are rewarded by that experiences of that experience of having a parent on their side. I won't do an in-depth cycle of interaction today just to give you the gist of the common cycle and there are so many different content issues that parents can get into conflict about. The parent instructs the child, the child who has become caught in a bit of oppositionality in their social and in their family relationships, they oppose the parent's instruction and the parent ups the pressure the child increases their provoking and their reactivity. The parent ups their assertiveness, adds a threat. The child increases their agitation and they're highly energized, adrenalized, and the parent is furious. And in some way, when parents can step back from it, they can see that the child is unhelpfully rewarded physiologically in this kind of cycle and it can just repeat itself. What is going on with the reactive adolescent brain? I'll spend a little bit of time on this just to appreciate that adolescents cannot yet respond as adults respond. Of course, many adults also behave like adolescents. But what we've got in this stage of life is that the rational part of a teen's brain is not fully developed and it doesn't have the capacity to be fully developed until at least around age 25. The brain is still very much a bottom-up brain where the emotional brain rules from the limbic system and the amygdala and the lower part of the brain that that is providing the most signals to the adolescent rather than a top-down brain where there are pathways being developed for more thinking and thoughtfulness. In the teen's brain, the connections between their emotional part of the brain and their decision-making center are a work in progress. They've got a long way to go and teens will vary for a range of reasons, but remember that the environment in the family and in the parent-child relationship prior to adolescence impacts the development of the child's practice at self-regulation coming from their upper brain. In adolescence, what's really interesting is there's a lot of remodeling and pruning of the brain going on. 
So the main change is that these unused connections in thinking and processing called gray matter, they get pruned away if they're unused. The child and adolescent will lose it. And in many ways, this is very important pruning um, because other connections get strengthened. And this is the teen brain's way of becoming more efficient based on the use it or lose it principles. It is important that we want to give, in the way we respond to our child, plenty of opportunity for not pruning away, creating space for the experience of being more thoughtful rather than reactive. This type of brain development is not so much bottom up from the emotional brain up to the thinking brain where you want to cultivate top down development of thinking over emotions. This is a back to front kind of development. The pruning process begins at the back of the brain and the front part of the brain, that prefrontal cortex, is the last to be remodeled. And this is the decision making part of the brain. It's responsible for the ability to plan, to think about consequences of actions, solving problems, managing strong emotions, and changes in this part of the brain continue into early adulthood. As I've already said, it doesn't hurt to repeat it, the environment at home that each parent contributes to significantly, it impacts a young person's practice opportunities at thinking versus reacting, but it's very much a work in progress. And so if parents try to relate to their teen at an intellectual level, their adolescent is much more likely to respond at an emotional level. There's big emotional input, so they can't explain later what they were thinking. They weren't thinking as much as they were feeling and running on impulse. Hence, I wonder if you can see this, parents, that when you move into lecturing, you just see the adolescent's eyes glaze over. It's not constructive. It's not the part of their brain that they easily engage, particularly when parenting is a bit intense and directed at changing them rather than parenting that is calmer, less intense, and expresses the principles and care of the parent rather than criticism or rescuing of the child. Heightened conflict can become quite addictive for the preteen and the teenage brain. There's a lot of dopamine and adrenaline that gets stirred up in a conflictual cycle. And what you can see in the literature on the adolescent development and their brain development is that there's heightened sensation seeking at this stage. And I'll put the links to this kind of research in the podcast notes for you to read if you want to look at it later. But certainly with puberty transitions, there's a substantial increase in sensation seeking, which is the emotional physiological surges that can be very rewarding. With this comes a lot of self-consciousness socially, an increase in the, the relationship hormones, oxytocin receptors, and facial sensitivity, noticing the face of the parent, a, a young adult, an, an adolescent, and indeed back to preteens, highly sensitive 
to facial features. Social information is what their brains are really cued for. So this increase in reward seeking is really apparent, particularly in the early adolescent phase around puberty, probably peaking around the age of 15 and then gradually declining. So conflict cycles at this stage of adolescence from around 11 through to 15, 16 can inadvertently just reward this sensation seeking. The development of self-regulation, the capacity to manage strong emotions, it occurs over the course of childhood, as I've said, even back to toddlers. But during adolescence and into the 20s, there's a gradual development of cognitive control using the front part and the top part of the brain to manage stronger impulses. But this is gradual. Also note that the literature shows that there's great value in flexibility. There's an article that I've read looking at research on parent-adolescent conflict interactions. And one of the important things that it notes is that the more variation there is during the conflict interactions, the more there is the opportunity for things to change rather than get stuck. And there can be a reorganization in the relationship. So the parent-adolescent conflict can be adaptive for relational development when the parent doesn't just repeat the same old patterns. So I gave you the original conflict pattern in a generalized form. Here's what it might look like when the parent is making a project of themselves and adjusting their responses. The parent requests... The child, who's gotten very used to the pattern of oppositionality, they predictably oppose. The parent works to stay calm. They express their disappointment with a serious tone. The child retorts and sulks, a lower form of protest than previously. And the parent gets on with their own tasks and does not engage in any provocative invitations so that the child, the adolescent in this case, can begin to calm down, can be a little bit more thoughtful. And it can take some time for this change because parents, when they start to resist and not get engaged in this conflict cycle, we'll find that the young person has a very strong change back response. Uh, change back mum or dad to that old way of fighting with me because I felt rewarded in experiencing the hormones of dominance and being in charge. A child is not thinking that. They're just emotionally experiencing that. So some other ideas that parents have taught me about the adjustments that they make to get out of this unhelpful conflict cycle. A parent can say, I'm not willing to add to this unhelpful conflict. I realize this is not being a good example when I get as stirred up as you do. It's not an example of being the kind of parent I want to be showing you that I'm committed to managing my strong emotions I'm willing to talk things over and listen, but only when things are calm. And maybe that won't be till tomorrow. And here's another example. 
This is more an example from a parent who used to get into rewarding helpless behavior around school avoidance. So more of the nurturing cycle rather than the conflict cycle or the rescuing cycle. This parent would say, I'm not willing to add rewards to your avoiding school. I believe that getting back to school as hard as it can be, and it may may take a while, it is a good outcome for you. I see that as your parent and I'll support your efforts to find your way back. Asking questions in a calm moment, not in the conflict cycle or even the intense helplessness rescuing cycle. Asking questions when it's calm can be helpful, but only if the parent is genuinely curious about promoting their child or their teen's thinking, not asking questions with a hidden change agenda, asking a question to try and change the teen. So examples of questions might be, what do you think about teenagers having guidelines for a coming home time? Or perhaps with the parent just defining themselves, that could be replaced with, here's how I think about this issue, and that helps me be a consistent, caring parent. How does that sound to you? In wrapping up, I want to just put out there for you that Parent Hope Project is based on Dr. Murray Bowen's family systems theory. So this is about systems thinking, not changing or treating individuals. It's about changing the emotional environment, the relational environment, and that impacts a child's development. It can a change from one parent of the relational patterns and the emotional environment and tone, that change can open up breathing space for a child to begin to recover their self-regulation, their self-direction, their self-responsibility. The hopefulness is it just takes one parent to do this, to reduce the intensity. And reducing intensity, or what theory calls fusion, that stuck togetherness in a relationship, reducing that stuck togetherness is more important than convincing an adolescent to change in the short term. The parent's effort is not to direct or to curb behaviors, even if that's based on good research about what is ideal. It's when a parent gets caught in trying to change the child that it can contribute to an environment that just rewards the teen's development of um, reactivity rather than thoughtful self-responsibility where they mobilize their top and their front brain and this is the parent not giving them fuel to react to. I trust that's useful food for thought. I'm not wanting to tell you how you should parent in your specific situation. I'm giving you ideas of common patterns that parents get caught in, some examples of ways parents have adjusted the way they manage themselves in their reaction. And I encourage you to get really familiar with your particular dance pattern with the teen who triggers you the most. Next time in our podcast, we're going to look at parent development around special needs children, kids that have biological challenges 
and how a parent's responses can nurture capacity even when a child has functional limitations. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Parent Hope Podcast. I trust it's left you with helpful food for thought as you consider how getting a worry focus away from your child and rather investing in yourself as the main project can bring renewed hope and confidence to your parenting. If you'd like to access more resources to find a Parent Hope Coach or to sign up to online parent courses, go to our website, parenthopeproject.com.au and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with those who you think might also benefit from these perspectives.